0: Welcome to CBUS Speaks, a podcast series by Tenfold, featuring real talk between Columbus leaders and the next generation.
1: Today on CBUS Speaks, we are thrilled to welcome Tani Crane to our conversation. Tani is the president and CEO of Crane Group. She, She sits on numerous boards, including Director of Huntington Bakeshares Incorporated, Reeb Avenue Center, Fisher College Advisory Board, Future Ready Columbus, as well as many others past and present. She's also the longest-serving female member of the Columbus Partnership. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tani, and we are excited to be able to have this conversation with you.
2: I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me.
1: Your grandfather started the family business back in 1947. What was it like kind of growing up in that environment with your, you know, your grandfather and your dad and your, your uncle? And just kind of talk about that. You know, Did you know you were going to go into the family business?
2: Another interesting story is that growing up, there was an anti-nepotism policy. So we knew that as young kids, there's four kids in my family, four kids in my, um, my uncle's family, that um, they had such a strong management team, leadership team, that they did, really didn't want to violate that trust, felt strongly about their, their leadership level. So we were encouraged to really pursue our own careers, pursue our own passions, which, as I look back upon it, was the best decision that could ever have been made. So I grew up not thinking, none of us really thought about the company, except my dad was gone a lot. And the only thing that I remember the most is he would come home at night and smell like plastic. And the other story I always remember is my mother was an artist growing up, I mean, just an amateur artist. And he would bring home, they would call them flog balls, and it were these giant, like almost like a string ball, but it was plastic, so an extrusion, in the extrusion business, which I relate to like a um, Play-Doh fun factory, you push that Play-Doh through a, a shape like a triangle, and then press down, and it it goes through, and then you cut it. That's an extrusion. And so in the it was a twenty-four-seven shop except uh, five days a week. So on Monday mornings when we would start up, it would flog. We were trying to get the all the materials out through the die, and it would roll up at the end of the line into these big misshapen balls. And my mother had come to the office one day and had seen those and thought, oh my God, they would be beautiful artwork for our yard, like flamingos, <laughs> except with these heaps of plastic. And so we had these flog balls in our yard. I'm like, I don't find those really appealing at all. So those are like childhood memories of crane plastics, and that's what we were called, except that on the other side of it, my mom and dad were very involved in the community. Well, both of them, but my, I remember my dad was the, um, both the president of United Way of Central Ohio, and he was also um, campaign chair. And he would take any one of us to the nonprofits. Um, and so it was just a matter of course, on Saturdays, we'd go visit the Y or any one of those and um, learn about them. So I felt like I grew up in the community um, because he wanted us to know how important it was for them. He always used to say, um, our community, Columbus, has been so good to crane plastics that we have an obligation to give back. So from a, from a very early childhood memory standpoint, um, my view of crane plastics was f- plastic smell, flog balls, my dad being gone. But also that, it, that work and community were together. They were never a separ- two separate things, and um, both, both my mom and dad really believed so much in that, that um, that's, we were so. All four of our kids in my family never thought we'd work there. My brothers and I both uh, all like, interned a couple summers, and I was basically a mail carrier you know, down the office hallway. I, I did nothing really in the factory. But I will say, um, when I went away to college, um inevitably I would take the I would I was in Chicago and I would um fly home and I'd take the later flights because they were the cheapest my dad would pick me up at like 11 o'clock at night and we'd always swing by the south side to the plant and he said I think I, I want you to meet the, the folks there and no one ever wore name badges back then and we probably had 200 people he would walk me up and down the lines of the third shift and introduce me and what I again another great childhood memory or, teenage memory was, he knew everybody's name. He knew who was about to have a baby, whose son was on a softball team, or daughter was in gymnastics, and would ask about each of them. And then he'd be you know, proud, both for me to be introduced to them, but for them to, to know his children too. Um, and I, I was sometimes reluctant, you know, tired after exams, flying home, like, do we have to go to the plant? But always afterwards, feeling so proud to be associated with the plastics company, because they were really, really great people that worked there.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned this importance of community in the business, and the family business, and in your family, and I think that definitely shows in Columbus. I think we can feel that in Columbus, and it's something that sets it apart. So how has that translated from what you've learned
2: as a child into what you do now? First, you know, I I stayed in Chicago after um, graduate school, and I really thought I'd stay there. I loved Chicago. And I started in sales, in national sales at AT&T, and then eventually went to um, my dream job working for Quaker Oats in product management. But all along, I, um, I lived downtown, and I lived in the northern suburbs, and I always wanted to get involved. So I called, I submitted my name places, I tried to get involved with United Way, and it wasn't easy. I mean, I, 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 I opened myself up, and at Quaker Oats especially, they had mentoring, Um, and I volunteered, and I developed very close relationships, but because I work for a downtown Chicago company, um, besides my role within Quaker Oats, mentoring, and doing some other volunteer work, I never felt like I was really making a difference, so when I, when my husband and I moved back to Columbus, it was almost overwhelming, And, and people warned me about putting your name up, I'm putting your hand up. Um, I, one of the first things, I was pregnant when we came back to Columbus and so I was, we were looking for childcare, trying to decide what to do. And I've talked to a, a woman, Mary Lazarus, who is well known in the community, a good friend of my mom's, and she was involved with a, an organization called Action for Children. And like one second I called about it, I went, I went to an event and then I'm on their service board and I, then I get on their board. I learned about an organization called Players Theater. All of a sudden, within like five months, I'm on three boards. And my dad's like, you know, you might want to temper that a little bit. But to me, yes, of course, I was from Columbus and my, my name was known. But I really believe that doesn't matter. I truly believe that part of the Columbus way is you find your passion and you make a call and... First of all, people call you back, and they will they will welcome you with welcome you with open arms. And I have felt that way because Columbus has a lot of folks from the outside who come in, and one um, resonating kind of continued uh, thread is that they may not stay with their current job; but they never want to leave Columbus because it's it's they they become immersed, and because people welcome them. And especially, I mean, for certainly with their job, but really with community, they, you find a passion, you express interest, and you are like, just really um, welcomed with that, those open arms. I think that's a very important message for our
0: generation as a 22-year-old to hear, and Davis as a 20-year-old to hear. I don't think Columbus is on the radar for young people to find a new job if they don't have a connection there. And it's not about having connections there, you can make them when you get there because people are so willing to
2: help others and to create these
0: connections, which is a great message.
2: Yeah. My daughter uh, was away at school and then lived in DC for four years and then um, decided to come back here for business school. And she left not ever thinking that she'd be back in Columbus. Um, Again, we we don't have the anti-nepotism, but we really encourage all of our children to go out and pursue their passion. It may lead them back here at some point, or they may even join the company at the beginning, but um, what we find most important is to follow your passion. So she came back just for business school, and she's very involved in social entrepreneurship. So one thing great about Fisher College, she was able to really design her own MBA, but she came back with a fresh set of eyes. And she, I mean, so often would would come visit us saying, I love the young scene here, the entrepreneurial scene, the new venture, and she was just welcomed by entrepreneurs. But she would make a call. You know, she'd go online and find what she might be interested in and make one call. And then all of a sudden, she's getting wrapped up in things I've never even heard of, which was so cool. And it was like, she's found her own way. She wasn't relying on me at all. She's just in in the swing of all what's going on downtown and teaching me. Quite a bit about Columbus that I knew nothing about. Yeah, that's what's important cool. about these conversations yeah. is
0: not only can we learn from you,
2: but it's a mutual Absolutely. teaching experience. Yeah. And now, even though she's well New York transitioning to DC, she's committed to be back here in five years. So really? I that's awesome. Really yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> we love to see that. Um,
1: I know I definitely read that uh, your dad definitely courted you oh, yeah. every <laughs> I, I heard calls every Sunday. Mm-hmm. um So, yeah, I was going to ask if if you were doing the same thing with your daughter. and you know, what do you, do you think that it was kind of those same type of things that pulled you back? Um, you know, back then, you know, working at Quaker Oats, it's more, you know, Fortune 500 type company versus the family business, Chicago versus Columbus.
2: You see right through me. I was just (laughs) reflecting on that. So I always laughed that my dad, he he was, he, even though he wasn't the entrepreneur, my grandfather was, it was so late in my grandfather's career. My, my grandfather was in his fifties. So it was almost like the his, his two sons and he created the business together. Um, so they act, my brother, my dad and his brother acted like entrepreneurs. And so they're in there, they finally formed an advisory board, which were all their friends here in Columbus. And, you know, at age 60, their friends were saying, what are you going to do about the business? And the, the old joking back and forth, immortality, blah, blah, blah. But they said, you know, your leadership team are your same ages. So it's not like you have a succession plan, and so then he looked toward his kids, and we're all in our careers. My two brothers were doctors. I was both my sister and I were in product management at two different companies. My cousins were journalist, uh, lawyer, school teacher, and so they were you know very involved as well. So, um, my dad said, "Oh, you know, I've, we really should do something about this." So he turned. We are very much alike, and so he thought he could. persist with me which he did so every Sunday night way before cell phones he would call me and say I think you should come back to Columbus I'm like hey I've got a really good gig going on here just got married and I really love the place but it's 99.9% men it's industrial it's not, not I'm consumer products finance so anyway three years of every Sunday night it was like Chinese water torture and um he was so persistent and we had gotten pregnant in the meantime, and I will say it was that quality of life. It was like, love Fortune 500 company, but there's analyst calls every quarter, and even though we had long-term strategic planning, it felt like um, Groundhog Day a lot um, with the analysts. We had a very young CEO, and it was, I've never learned so much in five years, but I think my husband, who had started his own business after being years and years with AT&T, we kind of had this wake-up call that we start balancing, you know, what's the most important thing to us and that quality of life. Um, it, it just, we, we were on a Hawaii vacation, I'll never forget, and with the whole family, and my dad had this habit of putting, slipping a piece of paper under my door every morning with like a <laughs> list of to-dos that we're going to talk about that day. I'm like, really? <laughs> but of course, I find myself doing the same freaking thing, but... Um, so we'd have these conversations, and he was bringing me into the business slowly, was asking my opinion about marketing or finance. And then we were at the airport all together in Chicago. The rest of my family was flying back to Columbus. And my dad just turned to me. We had, my husband and I had just refurbished a 1920s home a block from Lake Michigan, like everything we've ever wanted. And he just turned to us, and he said, I just want you to think about it. Got home house was just redone, and I turned to my husband, and he said, I know, I know. <laughs> so knew. we moved. We, that was in the sp- spring of 87, and we moved that summer. And um, just really quickly, which was such karma, so we started um, early fall. And that late fall, my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer. And he, had, um, and he hadn't smoked for 13 years, although I think he, he snuck them. But um, he had one lower lobe removed. And didn't require anything, no change in quality of life. So what a blessing I had. And, you know, four years later, he did pass away. But making that decision, I had that opportunity to mentor under him and really watch he and his brother co-lead our company and watch them in the community. You know, I I just couldn't have been luckier to have witnessed that. So as my daughter is making decisions in her life, I now pick up my cell phone or I text her every other day saying, so what are you doing? And she said, mom, I'm like, I'm on to you. (laughs) I know. (laughs) She's doing, you've told me the stories. But, you know, she, as she's now thinking about where she is in her career, she's in her early 30s, they're looking to, she's been, not she's been married for a couple years. They're looking about, talking about having children. She said, when, you know, when we have children, I know where I want to be. And so, I think that, You know, she's seen Columbus in a new light, and she knows it's welcoming. Her husband, who is from California, which frightened me because those West Coasters drag people to California and never see him again, Um, but he's been on the East Coast most of his career, that he came to love Columbus and sees through Tally's eyes, my daughter's eyes, but also sees what could be there for him, here for him. So it's exciting to see the same. It is a little bit the same um, torture I'm putting her through, but um, I think she recognizes that it's real.
1: Right, so as you talk about your daughter and and your own experience coming back to Columbus, how much you guys really put into, you know, getting the family business going from generation to generation. So I just wanna talk about, you know, when you came back in 1987, became the president in 1997, I believe, and then all the way to, you know, creating the Crane Group in 2003, I mean, you guys really went from, you know, crane plastics to adding like industrial composite decking, roofing to now where you are with holding and management and diverse investments. Like what was your thought about, you know, taking this business that was mostly industrial and and kind of flipping it on its head and, you know, making it work for generations and generations to come?
2: It, certainly, it was incremental, although in the late 90s, we did go through a, a fairly sizable transformation. Um, you know, starting out, my husband and I, when we, we were a package deal. So that's how I think my dad finally convinced us both to come. Um, and so we were basically consultants for the first six months. We didn't have positions. And then uh, the, the VP of sales and marketing retired, which was natural for, my, for me my husband got that position, which was also not very natural for him. So then I got the position of director of personnel of which I knew nothing about. And I griped about it. Cause it's one of those at that point. I mean, I think of HR now as the right hand person to the CEO. I mean, it's that critical of a position back then it was like down the hall out of sight, especially in manufacturing. And I was, but I learned about at that time, then 450 people, And we were all manual. We had no computers in terms of everyone being online and their history and their records. So we went through a little bit of a transformation to human resources. So it was really great. And then through the years, um, it was a very, it it was already a really successful company. So the old, they had a little bit of the adage, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Consultants weren't welcome. And being from a, Fortune 500 company, that's kind of how we operated. And we had strategic plans, we had our operating plan every year, three to five year plans, and our family business had none of those. So I think I learned rather quickly to, first of all, earn credibility, earn that trust, um, and not try to make a lot of changes because it was very successful. So really trying to, I tried to earn um, the respect you know, of this the great leadership team and the great people at Crane. And I think we found through the years that we had all of our eggs in one basket. So we were all in one material, um, PVC, and we were primarily in building products. And we learned through the mid-90s that um, that kind of big, we had a major growth really from post-World War II on through, and that things were slowing down. So through that time, my dad and my uncle had started diversifying only by taking some of the uh, incremental profits and putting them in investments. Not not that they weren't meaningful, but they weren't, they were just stocks and bonds, basically. And so they started, um, they didn't really realize it, but making some acquisitions, but they were just passive investments. So what we did was try to bring that to light, saying, "What can we add value? And it was the late 90s that um, my dad had passed away at this point that He had originally said, we had said, why don't we develop an acquisition strategy for diversification? And his line used to be, if I can stand on top of our building, which is on the south side of Columbus, and I could see it, maybe we could acquire it. I'm like, well, that's (laughs) going to go really far. But we were able to convince him, uh, actually it was my husband uh, and a group of uh, folks he worked with to acquire a company in Scrantonville, Pennsylvania. And that was really the beginning of our M&A. And so that led to kind of a diversification portfolio, although we still consider those passive investments. It was turning into 2000 that we brought Anderson Consulting at the time in and said, we're getting so large, our plastics business. We were in um, our original custom extrusion business. We had started a siding vinyl siting company, but it had the same balance sheet income statement very different processes. And then we had organically grown this um, wood composite business, a decking business. They were three different types of businesses that we were trying to manage under one unit. It was not working. And we, my cousin Mike and I went back to a lot of old shift meetings and we had um, really looked at the values of our company, really talked about profit sharing that we started in 1969 where everyone can make such a difference. And they can see how they make a difference and how that resulted in profit sharing. It was getting so large, you know, close to a thousand employees that we were feeling like people didn't feel entrepreneurial anymore. They didn't know that what they did here resulted in this here. So I always, I I call it, we imploded the company. We really had at that time four or five completely different types of operations that we needed to get small to get big again. So we, but really this was a transformational experience that could have, I could have gone down in mutiny, like overboard. People said we should pilot one. I said, let's do it all at once. We basically started by starting with nine LLCs. We took every single person in the company and drafted them into one of these nine companies. It's the first time ever we had someone without the name Crane as a CEO and having phantom equity and you know, really driving for results. We had no shared services except IT. It was the craziest like, couple of years that it could have gone either way. I always say it could be a Harvard business case now because it was the beginning of where we are today. Um, but it was a whole team of us that stacked hands saying, we've got to go back to our roots. We've got to go back to where we started from. And it was really the acquisition of an able Roof. Um, that in the in the mid '90s in another company, that we we looked through the eyes of the founder there, saying this is the way we used to be, and so anyway, it was um, a, a tremendous rewarding experience. That was, I, I, if I was a man, I would have lost all my hair. I did turn a lot of gray, but today now we're a portfolio business. Right. So today our business is an investment portfolio that's passive, and then a group of a group of businesses. That don't have relationship to each other, except that we look for strong, very strong business principles, and in terms of growth opportunities, very strong culture, very strong leadership teams. We used to look for entrepreneurs, and now we're looking for second stage growth, and so it is where we are today, and I I couldn't be more excited, but it is 360 degree different. than We have no plastics business anymore, at all.
1: which is... Definitely crazy considering that's how it all started. But so from a culture standpoint, you know, you talked about how, you know, you were this big company and, you know, at Tenfold, like say, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? So if it really does, you know, you got to buy in. So it sounds like you really bought in when you, you had that nine-person draft. You said, we want to get back to our roots. So, like, what is your guys' culture and and how big of a percentage is that when you're looking to acquire new companies?
2: It is, I wouldn't say everything, but I'd say it's, Eighty to ninety percent, you know when we were going through that transformational time, my cousin Mike and I went back through all these shift meeting notes, so we had three shifts and they once a quarter, my dad and my uncle would present in front of the company, and they would write notes. We went back through those because we were we wanted to make sure we had the values right. We had six values back at that time, um, and we went back through and made sure that that's what my uncle, my, my grandfather and my uncle and my father. Spoke to, and it was so. Over the years, we've really ingrained those values in everything we do, from our hiring practices, recruiting, how we, you know, our performance reviews, and so we've built our culture. We didn't build it; we built upon it. And then, um, and more recently, we've in the last few years, was, we've really looked outside for best practices. And since no one, we did surveys, and no one can remember all six values, we kind of boiled it, them down to three. And so now we are really focused with the help of outside consultant, maybe by the name of Tenfold, um, <laughs> <laughs> helping us really make sure that um, we're living our culture in everything we do, whether it's our place or the way, the way we perform. And so when we're looking at acquisitions, it is everything. And that has really grown through the last 10 years because we've, we've learned through failure. I mean, we've learned, we acquired a, a company that ended up being quite successful, but we sold it within, we're a long, well, let's start with, we're a long-term hold.
1: Right, you like to hold on to companies for a while, not just flip them quickly. Yeah,
2: I mean, we feel that we're like private equity, but we're a, we're a family office. So when we talk about potential um, partners, we, the difference is we are a long-term hold. We are patient capital. So as we are going through this, the last 10 years, and we acquired a company, I don't think we did enough due diligence on culture. And we had a CEO that just didn't align at all. And we had some members of our team saying, it's financial, you know, all that matters is the financial performance, not all. But they said, let's just push through, it's going to work, and it did. But the pain in my stomach, and my cousin's stomach, and our team's was not worth it. And, and we've decided that nothing's worth that anymore. I mean, it's not just financial performance; it really is about values aligning. Because if that doesn't if that doesn't fit, then no matter return is going to fix that. Because it's the way you know we're really about respect um, and family and community. And if if those don't align, then we're not going to get to the point of of really making sure that there's a win win. That's a success for all. You mentioned earlier this field that you're
0: in is 99% male-dominated. Were there obstacles that you faced? Was Did you feel every day that you were a woman in this environment surrounded by a,
2: a, mostly men? How, how did that change your career, impact your career? As I had shared earlier, you know, when, I, when we came back to Columbus, our, our company was very male-dominated and very much the generation above me, all the generation above me. So I'd walk in, you know, many, many times I'd walk into the management team room, and there was laughter going on before, and then all laughter stopped. So um, I had to confront that type of scenario, just being the only woman. And how I dealt with it was I I wasn't going to be humiliated or anything. I was going to stand up for myself, but I also wasn't going to be on the offensive in terms of, don't treat me like this. So I did, you know, I really worked hard to blend in, and back to earning trust, earning credibility. But it, I did find it to be true, you know, in the community as well, the Columbus Partnership, you know, being the only woman. But I, I always felt welcomed. I always felt that as long as you are leaning in and contributing, that you're going to get the respect back. So I have never, I mean, certainly I do feel that sometimes I do have to put extra effort in. And just one other small story, I've been very involved in women on boards, trying to get more women on public boards and private boards. And I shared a story about um, wanting to, I was on the Huntington board. Yeah, I was on the Huntington board. I was interested in joining another board. And, um, and so I started networking, because that's men do a much better job. I found that out. And so I placed a call to a really good friend, a male friend of mine who was slightly older, a slightly different generation. And so we had we had, I think, breakfast at the Columbus Club. And we were chit-chatting and stuff. And so I said, hey, you know, I am very interested in looking for another opportunity for a public board. And he like, like, like his jaw dropped, like, really? I would have like, oh. And I thought, why wouldn't why wouldn't he have thought or why is he so surprised? Right. And he said, Oh my gosh. I said, Well, I'd love your help. Because, well, for, for sure, I just, you know, like he would have just, I mean, it's a silly story, but it really impacted me. Like, why was this such a surprise to him? I, well, one, I was already on a board, but two, I was, I thought, a peer with all these other Columbus partnership members. So it's just, you know, still sometimes is a challenge. And, um, but I've always, I think, growing up to older brothers too, I, I, my advice always to, to, younger women and I always never turn down a phone call never turn down a text is lean in, you know, just ask that question, do your homework, maybe do your homework a little harder and get that seat at the table. Don't just naturally sit back at the, at the I used to be quieter when I was younger. People were surprised by that, but, um, you just learn that you just got to lean in and ask that question. Um, raise your hand for that assignment, do what it takes. But overall in Columbus, I, I really have never felt I've had an issue. Most of my mentors have been men, but the women who have been my mentors have been such strong role models for me. And they were such pioneers that have paved the way, the generation before me that made it so much easier for me. And, you know, there's been a group of us, and it varies by size, of women that when a a new woman leader comes into the community or a new woman in some role, that we just naturally invite her for drinks or dinner. In fact, we just invited that new president of OSU for dinner because still as a woman, it's different coming into a community than a man. And so we want her to know that she is so welcome and that if she ever needs any of us, we're there, you know, 100%. So it's, I, I think that's still part of Columbus Way. I mean, I think that, you know, people coming in, and especially younger people coming in the community, I think we've worked really hard, like with Ohio State, to try some mentorships so they feel, we want them to, once they graduate from Columbus, don't leave their things here that's really important to stay here in Columbus. I think it's such an inviting environment now. So we ask the question, why Columbus? And I think part of it
0: is to inform the younger generation about why, why Columbus is such a special place to come back to. I think you've answered that a few times in some of the responses, but can you think of anything else that really sticks out? It's why Columbus, why do you think it's so important
2: to keep building this community that we have here? Well, I, I think you know, through my daughter's eyes again, I think it's the youth, I think it's younger people that keep Columbus going and, and allow it to evolve and to take it to the next place. I mean, I, as a kid and then growing up, I would have never expected Columbus to be one of the most inviting places for gay and lesbian people to be, a creative, a creative force. And it's, it's made Columbus a much richer community. I mean, I'm looking at the short north. It's so cool to be downtown. Um, and it's so cool to be in different parts of our city. The arts make it so special. But if it's, it's young people... That if we don't, if you look at cities that are getting older, that are losing young people, they're going to die. We need those fresh ideas. We need, need tech. We need technology. What's the next wave? What's the next big thing? I think that's what having Ohio State and so many colleges here and CCAD, having the capital, we have such a wonderful mix of types of people that are being brought in that but it's I, th- I really do think it's the youth that are going to keep us young at heart, young at spirit, again, growing up, we were always the test market because we were the a city where a lot of entrepreneurs started and continue to start. but I think that's why Columbus continues to make that mark
1: yeah I mean I, I definitely think that your generation was kind of known as the entrepreneurial come up of Columbus, so it'll be exciting to see you know what this next you know younger generation brings to the table
2: I mean you think of the like a combination of Medicine and technology. I mean, we just talk about Battelle in Ohio State, we've talked about that for a long time. But I think that's the next new wave. You look at biology, you look at um, diseases, you know, where are we going in our agriculture? We've got such an interesting combination of types of, of categories and industries. That I think that an automotive, it, it, it used to be retail, I think that's moving. But again, I go back to where we're located, and some of us would say, gosh, we don't have an ocean. I say that often. We don't have (laughs) mountains, but we have access to those. But we are that heartland, and while sometimes we lose our way in, like, what is Columbus? But I think now it's that heartbeat. It is the heartland. It is the center of the United States. We may not be as impacted by hurricanes and natural disasters, but we have that work ethic, And we have that mix of industry and we have youth that, we have got great dynamics for a future. And I would say, especially with COVID-19, people are gonna recognize that. Again, I I have four daughters, so it's not just this one daughter, but she was Miss Urban, live in the city, I don't want a car. Well, they're already moving to DC on the outskirts where they're gonna have a car and a yard and they're on their way to Columbus. I, I think it's going to be a different mix. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how cities hold up during this kind. Of, I think it's a new, it's a sea change that we're
0: seeing. It's interesting you bring up the um, like medicine, especially in the different industries that are cl- in Columbus. And I think what I'm noticing from Columbus, it's not just industries that people want in a city, but what they need. So we need medicine right now, and Columbus is capitalizing on right. that, and they're seeing these opportunities. And I think with younger generations, it's important for them to see that Columbus is doing what people need. Yeah. And to get here and to be able to
2: join that is significant. It is. And just one other thing I want to add is that I think one thing, like my father, I've taken my daughters to all kinds of events. So I do think what my kids see and what they love about Columbus is that you can make change. And they've been involved with me at the Reeve Avenue Center for the last five years. And they've watched how to white women, along with a lot of other people, can go to the South Side, which is our company's roots. And and it happens to be Jane Abel, you know, um, chairwoman of Donato's, her roots on the South Side. You know, together with a mayor and a city and a community and nonprofit and um, faith-based community can come together and say, there's a part of our city that really needs help and that we can actually make a difference. And that's where stacking hands was truly, it really worked. Um, It really was the champion, it was really Mayor Coleman, but he was able to bring together champions. And it's not just one person that makes a difference, but it was one person plus one person plus one person. And so I think our kids and others in the community have seen how we could do that. You know, it was pretty scrappy. We did not have a grand plan we didn't know what we didn't know. Like, I wonder that sometimes I think back and shudder that I don't know if I would have gotten into this because initially Jane just called me and I said, well, yeah, we'll just, we'll just give some money and be, not be done with it, but move on. And especially folks in business, we tend to like projects that have a beginning and end. You see results and you go, great. Well, this had like had no end. And, you know, then, you know, raising $12.5 million and, and now today after five years, seeing our neighbors in the south side have a community center where they can actually help themselves and really transform their own lives and now we're working on a housing project across the street for affordable housing for 23 units for single moms and it's just remarkable that a small group of people committed people can make a difference and it's everyday people I means everyday people that can make a difference which is super cool for a city
1: what do you say to kind of just like the grit of columbus you know, I think that's kind of part of the Columbus way. When you know, you're talking about not just spending money, but actually, you know, going down and volunteering and, and that sort of thing. Like, what do you what do you see from the leaders of this city, kind of getting their hands dirty?
2: Every single one of them does. I just read an article. Or I I just read the headline of an article today. I think it was Nick Aiken's, You know, of AEP saying we're going to confront racism. And and he the the tone of the article. I, I, again, I didn't wasn't able to read it all, but it's authentic. And I think our leaders are authentic. And he will get his hands dirty. I sit on the Huntington board and S- Steve Steinauer, not to call names out, but people I know, he is at the front of the pride parade every year. And he doesn't do it to get his name in the paper. He does it because he believes in his gut that it's the right thing to do. So it's, it's not these people that live in these ivory towers they might, they may be up there, but they walk the talk. And I could go through every single organization and they commit significant financial resources, but they also believe in it and that, and that leadership comes from the top and that all their folks then believe and get involved and volunteer.
1: Yeah, I think that you hit on a huge point of this podcast. It's like, you know, we really wanted to get these local leaders that are so admired and respected for the younger generation to hear them and know what they're doing, and see how it, a Columbus could be different from a New York and LA with the, the type of impact that you can have in your, in your own community. So you know, thank you so much for shedding light on that.
0: So yes, I think that hearing from the leaders themselves just about why Columbus is so special, I think that some of, some of what you're talking about is learned and like the walking the talk, that type of thing. I think when these leaders set great examples, it just allows for the younger generation to follow in their footsteps, especially with this podcast. We're bringing these leaders to the next generation, people like you, because in a lot of other cities, our generation doesn't get to meet these leaders, doesn't have to get to sit down and have these conversations or use us as a vehicle to have these conversations. And I think it is learned. It is part of the culture of Columbus. And to be able to bring that to these people who are entering the workforce, these young entrepreneurs in Columbus I think it's really important to see
2: what these leaders did in order to get to the place that they're in yeah yeah you know Doug Kreidler it has to have been eight to ten years ago um, I used to be on the board at um, Columbus Foundation and he brought I always called the old people and young people but he brought some donors of the Columbus Foundation for dinner one day at the at the foundation with young entrepreneurs And I don't know if he really, he didn't really pair us up at all, but I ended up sitting next to a young entrepreneur and we could not be more different. And we are like best friends today because we just struck up a conversation and um, I think I became her mentor, but in reality, she became my mentor and I have learned like so much from her, but I really thank Doug. And that's just one example of an organization doing that, but I see it going on, but I mean, that's how Columbus works. It's kind of uh, putting some folks together, throw them in a room and see what happens. And um, I see it happening at like the Ohio State and Columbus Partnership has been doing quite a bit of that as well. And um, even I know YPO, which is Young Presidents Organization, is pairing up with the entrepreneur EO and stuff and matching up folks so we can learn from each other. So I, th- I think there is a concerted effort to try to blend so that this not felt like there's these people here and you're you're in or you're out or you're and also like even at the art and, uh the art museum they have a whole young professional group so it's pretty cool that there's a lot I think people recognize that it is the youth that's going to make the big change
1: yeah I think uh people do recognize it but maybe you know need to take even more attention to it but with like This process of going through setting up this podcast, like I said, every leader that we've asked, pretty much every single one, we're batting a thousand. They're like, I'd be honored um, to come on the podcast and, and, you know, speak to the next generation. I think that really speaks to Columbus as a city. And, and, you know, like you you mentioned, it's not just lip service. People are actually out there because they care. And these big corporations might look like big corporations, not necessarily the Crane Group, but they actually care about the citizens of columbus and and young people
2: yeah and i think i see it i know our organization is working hard we have this program called crane on board and we really uh, encourage we don't mandate but really encourage everyone to get on a board or a committee and then we we match funding and all of that but and we're providing more structure around it so that people feel comfortable so if, it's a very selfish reason because I know people come back after being on boards and they're so fired up that they're much more productive actually. But I think for their own like, kind of self worth um, and networking, you grow so much when you're push people to the community um, because other people can always say I'm too busy, and I just don't buy it. I see some of the busiest people in the world on nonprofit boards and working, and so we've really encouraged our youth, our young people in our organization to get out there and follow their passion in a, in a nonprofit. And it's really benefited them. And all of a sudden they're moving up and doing different things and getting recognized. And frankly, that's how I, I trace my steps back from the Huntington board. I was on the Federal Reserve Bank of um, Cleveland. I, was, I chaired that board. The reason I got on that was, I, was on, I chaired the United Way board and I was giving a presentation on our strategic plan and the Cleveland United Way came down to see it, and the vice chair was the vice chair of the Federal Reserve Bank Board, which I I I never thought about. I gave a presentation and all of a sudden I get a call. So you just like, you never know what, being on nonprofit boards, being involved in a committee, what that's gonna lead to. That's why I encourage, I try to push people out of their comfort zone to join a board, to get involved, especially young people when they come into the community. Because it is a way, one, just get to know people, networking. And if you really link where things happen, it's, it really it starts there. Tani, this has been such a great
0: conversation today, and we can't thank you enough for being here. And to wrap up, just kind of tie a bow on it, we were curious if there's any type of message, any words of wisdom you want to share
2: with the next generation. You know, I think my message to the younger generation is not far from what I've been saying is, Lean in, I know it's such an overused phrase, but get your hands dirty. Don't think that you have to say, I'm, I'm building my career. I hear that so often. I feel like um, I could have said that, any one of us could have said it, but I don't separate anymore my career from my community, from my family. I think it's blended. I personally think it should be blended. And I think we are our most productive selves when there's a little bit of chaos, um, but most importantly when you're you're totally firing in all cylinders. And I don't think that can be accomplished if you're so myopic and all you can think about is your clients at your law firm or my plastics, you know, my customers. But it's filling, filling my whole self. And so that is being uncomfortable and getting out in the community and doing something. Because I think that's when we feel more fulfilled as humans. And I think that's where magic happens. So um, I'm so thankful to my parents that invested in that, or really put that inside me from a young kid. Um, But I would really encourage especially young people coming to Columbus, it's the best avenue in um, because we do have the Columbus way. Um, but I also think that it's going to take time, but I think that investment is probably one of the best investments, the best return for your investment in this community that you can have. And and that I, I'm like speaking from years and I'm now old. I can say, uh, I do have a little bit on. of wisdom on this and Far none, everyone I've known who I consider a very good friend who's been very successful in their career, it's because they've been involved in the community. Those who have not invested in the community, I don't think have found their way up the ladder as well and, and are not as fulfilled. Thanks for listening to CBus
0: Speaks. Keep up with the conversation on Instagram or Twitter with the handle at Tenfold Talks.